This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. I think we should talk about something that we feel like making a firm, albeit possibly embarrassingly wrong, prediction on. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, with me today is Sarah Cliff, uh, my esteemed colleague. We have no idea where Ezra is. We've lost he, track of Ezra in 2017. He told us he wasn't going to be here. Um, we think maybe he's in California. Unclear. Um, but he will be back in Washington, D.C. on Friday for what I like to think of as a, as a special video episode of The Weeds. Um, featuring not me, but instead a guy named Barack Obama. Yeah, so we've been we've been looking for <laughs> to change things up with our third host. So on, um, and we hear President Obama is going to be looking for a job pretty soon. But the exciting news is Ezra and I will be interviewing President Obama on Friday at 11 a.m. It will be about the Affordable Care Act. It is one of the president's last chances to defend Obamacare as Republicans begin in earnest attempting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And the interview is like a it's like a live internet event. It will. It's a live internet, unlike this podcast, which you listen to after we record. This will be um, you you will be able to watch this live on Vox.com, great website. And again, it'll be 11 a.m. on Friday. It'll also be recorded. If I don't know what else you might be doing at 11 on Friday, it's going to be on the YouTube and the, uh, the YouTube our Facebook page. I think it'll be on the Facebook. I think maybe on the White House's. But if you yeah. if you like to avoid all websites and just like give your money to giant internet monopolies, you have that option as yes. well. Yes, yes, there are many options for how one can experience this event. Um, um, so it'll be great. It'll be about an hour and it'll be all about Obamacare and it'll be a good time. Awesome. So, you know, uh, while that, that sort of plays out, we, we wanted to do a little bit of a, a little bit of a New Year's episode. Um, it's January 4th, which is still New Year's-ish, and sort of look ahead to, to the year to come. For our, our, our year-end special, we, uh, we looked back at 2016. Uh, if there's one thing we learned in 2016, it's that Political pundits are just like really good predicting future <laughs> events, that this is like our core competency and something we really need to focus on. Yeah, like, we're going to we're going to predict some good future here so, and be totally accurate. So this is going to be so rock solid. Uh, hold us 100. I want to be judged in my career exclusively on the quality of the predictions here. Wow. Um, I, yeah, I don't want that. That's, but... that's all that's all that I'm about. All right. Um, well. But so but so we'll let you go first. So I can, Wait, why so do I, can I have to go with first? Some, with some better ones. Um, no, no, not, not if you've no. staked your whole all career right. on this. All you're right. you're definitely going first. Okay. So here's what I think we're going to see. I think we are going to find that there are some powerful individuals in Republican Party politics, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, et cetera, who I think feel like they are on the top of the world right now, that they felt a lot of discomfort over the summertime and the fall, maybe a a touch in the spring where they thought, oh, this Trump thing, you know, it's like... It's it's not good, you know. They, it's really they, happening. They were they were they were really queasy about it, um, but then Trump won, and Trump winning removed a lot of their doubts about Trump, and they are now riding high. Paul Ryan is tweeting very confidently about the once in a lifetime opportunity that congressional Republicans have, 
And I think that this is going to end in humiliation and disaster for them as individuals. I think they may achieve a lot of their substantive policy agenda. I think that, you know, Paul Ryan, with Ezra not here to to interrupt me, I'm just going to say, I think Paul Ryan genuinely gets up in the morning and he thinks, like, what can I do to help poor people? And by help poor people, what Paul Ryan means is reduce their incomes and living standards. He's really obsessed with this. It's been like a years-long mission of his. It's often attributed to him that he cares about other things like the deficit and debt, but there's no evidence of that. But he has like a single-minded focus on like taking income and in-kind support away from poor people. And he's going to achieve some of that. But I think he's also going to end a broken and humbled man. If you look through Donald Trump's career, which is extensive, you do not find I think a single instance of a person (laughs) who went into business with Donald Trump and came out on the other side of it, like feeling good about themselves and what they got. I don't know exactly what's going to sort of come of it. But, you know, we've seen a lot of people like Trent Lott uh, when George W. Bush was president. You know, he was like a really important, influential senator until he had a president of his same party, at which point, as soon as Trent Lott became like an inconvenience, he was ditched and rejected. And that's not because George W. Bush was this like Trump-like figure who like humiliated and discarded absolutely everyone, but it's because it it is a it's a shifting of power, you know? It, it, it's very common, like this new guy comes into town and it's like, all right, we've been here a long time, you know, we're going to be giving him the marching orders, but it turns out to be the other way. You add to that the fact that Trump doesn't care about conservative politics, doesn't care about the Republican Party, doesn't care about having a reputation as like a square dealer. What Trump cares about is having a reputation as a tough guy who stands his ground. Um, and I think, you know, people are going to find themselves really sort of discomfited that um, Chris Christie has completely vanished from national attention. But before vanishing to national attention, he was a humiliated, broken national joke. And before he was a humiliated, broken national joke, he um, was a (laughs) well-respected figure in Republican Party politics. And that is what is going to happen to every single person who thinks they can collaborate with Trump. So I'm curious, like, kind of like how you see this playing out, because I feel like I could see it going one of two ways, kind of building on something you were saying, that Trump does not seem super interested in traditional conservative politics. He seems at this point, you know, somewhat interested in doing these things outside of D.C., like talking about the carrier deal or like doing these things that really don't involve Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, these leaders on the on the Hill. So in one version of that, like you see that just going forward, right? Like they continue like doing what they're doing on Obamacare appeal, like that gets driven by the Hill um, and Trump plays like a relatively actually minor role as he does these other things, or you see him getting more involved in that process. And you see things like, you know, like the tweets last night or Monday night or Sunday night, all the days of this new year blurring together about the congressional ethics office and like him like jumping into things at like very unexpected moments. And like, I'm curious how you see this playing out, like where, where you see this humiliation happening. Because I do agree, it's like happened to a number of Republican politicians along this primary schedule. I mean, I think it's very unpredictable what is actually going to happen. Like, I would not have said a week ago, well, I think what's going to happen is House Republicans are going to try to undermine the Office of Congressional Ethics, and then Trump is going to humiliate and embarrass them. But it was just a signpost to the fact that I think, I think there's a fantasy among Republicans on the Hill that because Trump 
doesn't care that much about this stuff, that he's going to just go along with whatever it is they want to do. I think he will go along with a, a lot of what they want to do. But what we saw, I mean, to to explain in case anybody missed this, was I guess it was in 2008, House Democrats created this new, stronger House Ethics Office. And that was because they had won in 2006 uh, in large part on the basis of sort of Republican scandals and things like that. So they, in their sort of first term at, at, in the majority, Nancy Pelosi created this new ethics office. Um, the ethics office annoyed a lot of members. Uh, you could have heard Democratic members grumbling about it just as much as Republican members. But because Democrats had created it, this was like one of their signature accomplishments. They weren't going to do away with it. Uh, House Republicans uh, decided, yeah, let's scrap it. They got a lot of bad press about it, sort of like bad tweets, uh, a surprising amount, it seemed to me. Like a lot of mainstream media people went with the word guts in their like headlines about what was going on here, which I think was perfectly accurate, but was like more aggressive than I would have guessed. And I think was probably more aggressive than Representative uh, Goodlatte thought <laughs> his, his resolution was going to get. Constituents were outraged. They started calling in and... House Republicans would probably have wanted at that time Donald Trump to either defend them with some tweets echoing members' complaints about how this office was unfair and lacked due process uh, to help them out with some distraction. He could have gone on a tweet storm just about the Chevy Cruz and, you know, how he hates Mexico um, or at a minimum to just like stay silent and let them ride this out. But instead he piled on with a little <laughs> gentle criticism for no real reason. If you are a House Republican, I mean, you got to be mad, right? I mean, here's a guy who is corrupt as fuck, right? So much more corrupt than anyone in the House of Representatives probably ever. He is just sitting there as we speak. Foreign governments are paying cash bribes directly to Donald Trump, right? As we speak, we have no idea what financial position Donald Trump has in any of the businesses that he is regulating. It is insane. <laughs> and... All of the Republicans, every single House Republican is, as we speak, covering for Donald Trump. Any one of them could say in any way that they have any problem with any of Trump's massive corruption. They haven't done it. They've been going along to get along. As soon as they said they wanted a little piece of the action, Trump smacked them down, right? He just he cut them off. And that's the kind of thing that is going to keep happening. People are going to do things with the theory being, if I do X, some kind of bad scenario will be avoided for me. And it's just like, it, it, it's not going to happen. I don't know what, it's, I don't know what Donald Trump cares about any more than they do. But I think it's really clear that he cares about humiliating his opponents, dominating others. He doesn't believe in fair play. He has gotten so much further than anyone would have ever thought. I mean, you read anything about his business career, it makes you think, like, why does anybody pay their subcontractors, right? I, I think we mostly think that, well, if you developed a reputation as a guy who will say he's going to pay you $100,000 for a piano, but then just doesn't, that you would have like a really hard time building things in the future. But Trump has always reinvented himself, gone along, got along. Everybody thought he wasn't going to win this election. He won. Um, and he's just – I think he's going to betray and crush everyone who I mean, this speaks to the it. point that Ezra made last week, that, like, we thought we knew what the rules were. We thought we knew what the rules were for being, like, a businessman, for being a politician. And, like, I, I think 
we learned last year that we didn't really understand those. So here's – I don't know if I believe it, but I think I'll just outline the case for why this might not happen and just see what you yeah. think of it. So, you know, going back to this congressional ethics things that happen, I think one of the things that's notable about it is this is something that the folks you're talking about, like Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, like they were not on board with. This seems to be something that like came out of the membership. There were like even reports the night it happened that like Paul Ryan was was upset with it. Like he realized this was a bad look. So he was – Weirdly, in a way, like almost not quite as directly, like not out there sending these tweets, but in the quotes that were coming out, it was kind of on the same side as Trump here and throwing his caucus under the bus a little bit. And the thing I wonder about is whether, I mean, this is a big question, but like, are Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan smart enough to avoid this in some way? Like, I, I think Mitch McConnell is a very good politician and like has been very good at like demonizing the Affordable Care Act and like rallying people around repeal and like has, you know, ran on a platform of repealing Obamacare in Kentucky, the state that has had the biggest decline in uninsurance and won and was really amazing at keeping his caucus, you know, so, so aligned in the objectives of running against Obama in ways that I did not expect. Like, I did not expect they could maintain that ideological consistency for the entirety of um, the president's time in office, but but they did. I, I see the way this doesn't happen is that they are able to out-politician Trump, that they are able to, like, avoid the traps that, like, Christie was falling into, that Cruz was. I don't know exactly how you do this, but I do want to give— them credit for people who, who have been doing this for a while, who are quite good at politics, possibly being able to avoid this in some way. Well, I, I will give some credit to McConnell. And I would say one thing that you can say about Mitch McConnell is that he has never once in any way criticized or distanced himself from Donald Trump or suggested any resistance to anything that Trump has to say about anything, right? All during the campaign, there was like this running story, like Donald Trump would say things like, I don't believe Mexicans should serve as federal judges, right? And, you know, there would be like an outcry, right? And Paul Ryan would be like, oh, that's a textbook example of racism. Mitch McConnell, fuck all to say about it. Right. Right. Or during uh, like the entertainment week or whatever, the, the grab by the pussy. Tapes. Right. 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 Like, so a Donald, lot of people are flip flopping. Donald Trump is like, yo, yeah. I like to rape ladies <laughs> just all the time. And a lot of Republicans were like, eh, that sounds kind of bad. <laughs> Mitch McConnell didn't say anything. Right. He wasn't going to defend it because if you defend Donald Trump, you'll be humiliated because it's right. totally indefensible. But if you criticize Donald Trump, you'll be humiliated because Donald Trump is out to humiliate and punish his enemies. And so I think it's entirely possible that Mitch McConnell will serve the next but four years um, without ever mentioning Donald Trump or offering any opinions on anything that he does and that he will be OK with that. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Stein has a great sort of Q&A um, on our site this week with Alec McGillis, who wrote a, a, a fascinating sort of mini biography of, of Mitch McConnell, uh, which I, I believe that the title of it is The Cynic. Um, and it's true that, you know, if you're sort of don't care at all, right? Like McConnell sort of spends his whole career in this sort of life jacket on, you know, like helmet on. Like he's he's a very savvy political operator, but he's not trying to do anything exactly. Um, and, and it and it works for him. Uh, but I do think other people, right? I mean, a great example I, I would give right now is John McCain and Lindsey Graham, right? They have clearly articulated that they do not think 
Donald Trump's proposed new alliance with Russia is a good idea. They are committed to an anti-Russian foreign policy, or at least like they think they are. They went and visited troops on the front lines in Ukraine, things like that. And I sort of wish them well in this. I mean, I sort of think their own foreign policy ideas are, are a little bit crazy, but they're doing it wrong. Like they either they are going to help Donald Trump's opponents destroy him or they are going to be destroyed. This idea that you're going to develop some kind of like medium distance from Trump or change him or sway him in a different direction, like that to me is like what the delusion is. Mm -hmm. Like I think if Trump tells Mitch McConnell, I want you to stand on one foot and sing the Russian national anthem, you know, he'll do it, right? Like he 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 doesn't particularly care. Um, and probably Trump won't even bother to ask him because, you know, why, why would he, right? Um, but it, it's like it's – whether it's Paul Ryan, whether it's John McCain, whether it's Rand Paul, it's the people out there who think that they're going to make some kind of accommodation where like them getting what they want is an important part of, of the puzzle, it, it seems to me, are, are the ones who are who are mistaken here. Yeah, and I guess the question it raises for me, like how this plays out in 2018 and 2020 and like where voters land on like who, in these like battles, which I do – Agree will happen with some members, if not the leadership. Like, who comes out looking good? I don't even know if it matters, to be honest, because districts, you know, some of them are so safe that it might not make much of a difference. But I don't think I understand right now. I guess we're making predictions, but I don't have a prediction on this. I don't understand how this plays out. Like, if you end up in a situation where the fight and, like, the humiliation is coming from the president to members of Congress, like— how that plays out for control of Congress. Yeah, I mean, a, a really works. bad scenario for Republicans is one in which Trump is not that good at being president, uh, which leads to the Republican Party being unpopular in 2018, which leads to them losing the House. But then because of gerrymandering, a lot of the new Democratic members are very vulnerable and, you know, would like to be seen as bipartisan. And then because Trump does not care about the Republican Party or conservative politics, completely rewrites the rules of this like era of partisan polarization and is like, sure, I'll cut lots of deals with vulnerable Democrats from Republican leaning seats. Right. And, you know, then it's like you're sitting there in the minority, completely jettisoned, completely cut loose as the Trump administration has, you know, 100 percent gone rogue. Right. I mean, right now, the message from Democrats, uh, which I think is accurate, is that Trump seems to be desirous to go along with a very hardline conservative agenda, which seems correct to me. He's got Mike Pence and guys from the Heritage Foundation staffing his administration um, because that's that's like who he's working with right now, right? But like when Obama lost control of Congress in 2010, he remained doggedly committed to the principles that got him elected in 2008. And he kept fighting Boehner and McConnell. You know, he kept like fighting for environmentalism and fighting for Obamacare and, and all that kind of stuff. Just like when Bill Clinton, uh, that's what presidents do, right? We expect presidents to reflect their party's mainstream ideology and priorities. And Trump doesn't, right? I mean, he's working with conservative Republicans right now because that's who is in office. There's no point in working with moderate Democrats. There's barely any moderate Democrats around at all. But if Democrats win, you know, he, he's going to work with them. Um, and then they're going to, in, the, you know, have their own chance to get humiliated. Yeah. That's 
That's how I see it. That's Lots my of humiliation, prediction. 2017. Pain and humiliation for anyone who doesn't simply uh, genuflect to Trump at, at all times. All right. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. I am going to focus a little differently. I see a lot of crazy shit happening in state legislatures that we will totally miss and that we will be distracted by what is happening in Washington, and we will miss the story of what's happening in state legislatures. So, you know, to give a bit of background to this, one of the things we've been seeing over, you know, the past six, eight years is really a Republican takeover of state legislatures, that Republicans have increasingly either gained full control of legislatures or um, at least broken through Democratic control. So you see legislatures like Colorado flipping over the past few years from Democrat control to split governance. And like if you look at these maps that the National Council of State Legislatures puts out, it's just kind of this sweeping sea of red that keeps growing and growing. Um, Even with Republican control of Congress and the White House, I think we're still going to see a lot of difficulties getting stuff done in part because of this weird relationship between Trump and the legislatures. Like I have just over the past two days become a lot more pessimistic about the odds of Obamacare repeal. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of things right now that suggest it's going to be quite hard for them to even move through the repeal process and get the 51 votes they need in the Senate. But state legislatures, it's a lot easier to move things through. It's a lot high, less high profile. And the stuff like really matters a lot. Um, you know, The state legislatures are regulating everything from abortion to criminal justice policy, environmental policy. Um, they're regulating background checks on guns. Like there's so much happening there. And I think we have focused on, you know, the craziness around Trump and the unexpectedness of who is in Washington. And we will miss kind of a wave of different laws that are going to come into state legislatures and arguably reshape the country in more of a significant way than whatever happens in D.C. So I guess my one main doubt about that is like, isn't that largely something that already happened? I mean, I mean, there were some moves in 2016, right? Like Democrats took the Nevada legislature. Republicans took one house in Colorado. I think Democrats took back the Washington state Senate, but Republicans won Kentucky, something like that. But but like wasn't the earthquake like back in 
2010? Like, haven't they already, like, banned abortion as much as as much as they can? Like, what? I agree with you on one level, right? So, like, Michigan, Donald Trump won the state of Michigan. And everyone was like, whoa, the Midwest, working class, industry, something, Democrats, blah, blah, blah. But it was, like, two years ago that Michigan became a right-to-work state. And I think when we, like, look back at, like, the story of the upper Midwest's rightward turn— we're going to say that it was it wasn't just that like Republicans won state government in Michigan, but that in like the heartland of the United Auto Workers, they felt emboldened to just wipe out the private sector, labor union sector in in that state. And and it wasn't like a big story when it happened. So so I agree with you there, but I'm but I'm like curious like what 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 going forward, uh, you know, is is really sort of going to be in the offing. So I think you're right. The big shift happened in 2010, but you've been seeing smaller shifts in the same direction since. So actually, Nevada went Democrat to Republican in 2016. And you also see Mich- or you see um, Minnesota going split control. Um, so you've seen it in New Hampshire is going completely Republican. Um, so you're seeing more of the same shift that started in 2010. So I think that's one reason I agree that um, the big shift happened in 20, 2010, but it's still still happening. I think the other reason to expect more now, and I follow this most closely through the lens of abortion policy, and one of the things I've learned there is it takes a few cycles for laws to really proliferate. You, you generally see, at least how I've seen it work in abortion policy, is like one or two states – try something out. Like a good example of this is um, Nebraska, I think it was 2008 or 2010, they passed the first abortion ban at 20 weeks. And other states were kind of watching to see, can we get this passed? Like, how does it go? And then you see this wave following afterwards, and it builds year after year to, I think we're at a point where 10 or 12 states have 20-week bans. And if you go back to before the Nebraska law, none of them did. And it didn't happen all at once. You kind of see one of the things that's quite different about the state legislatures in Washington is they can kind of look at each other, look at what other states are doing and mimic that. And you have national groups helping them mimic that. You have in the space of abortion, the um, Americans United for Life, which drafts up this um, kind of fill in the blanks legislation where if you want to do a 20 week ban, they'll hand you the bill, you fill in your state name, you fill in some details and you can take that to the state legislature. So I think it will matter because the groundwork has been laid for six years. And so you're seeing both, you know, the wave of initial laws and now more control of legislatures where they can be passed. And those things, to me, suggest that we'll see some interesting, like, new lawmaking and possibly, like, things we haven't seen before. With, you know, in the abortion space, one of the things you've seen since the 20-week ban is people moving, like, earlier and earlier. So you start with like 20 weeks and you push back to 16 and then you have like these heartbeat laws that Ohio is experimenting with. And you see the laws that were passed in 2010, like more extreme versions of those coming out in 2016. So I think that cycle continues. And again, it just gets less coverage than what's happening in D.C. Like you can read like a million stories about the Obamacare debate. You're going to read a lot fewer stories about like what is happening in all these state legislatures that are, you know, becoming are passing more extreme bills and are getting more and more controlled by by Republicans. Yeah. Well, and I also do want to say to scold uh, the listeners here that <laughs> I, I think 
I hear journalists talk a lot about how these things get less coverage and about how, you know, bureaus in the states and stuff are, are shutting down and, you know, all, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's all true. But, like, it doesn't get less coverage because editors are sitting around being like, fuck Sacramento. Like, we don't care, right? Like, it gets less coverage because it gets less readership. Like, you would think at some point that, like, 90 million different outlets covering Donald Trump's tweets, that, like, at the margin, you would, like, get more readers by talking about what the Ohio legislature is doing in Columbus. But I feel like we have not yet, like, touched bottom on, like, how few resources can possibly be devoted to state government. Like, people have, like, such a firm level of, like, utter indifference. Like, they don't vote in midterm elections. People don't know the name of their state senator. I I was talking about last week how, like, people don't seem emotionally impacted by these kinds of things. Like, nobody is living in Maryland, like, emotionally shattered by the fact that Larry Hogan became governor instead of a totally good, well-qualified Democrat, you know, veteran who'd served for years in state government. Some, like, jackass rando businessman waltzes in, wins the election. Right, and, like, happened in 2014. I mean, some people voted for Hogan. Some people voted against him. Nobody was bothered. Nobody's reading about it. He now has, like, a 70% approval rating because people figure, like... He, he must be OK. They don't know. Right. Um, and it, it strikes me as, you know, um, I don't know, a, a, a crisis in the like soul of America and of Americans. Um, and it also raises the question of like, why shouldn't conservatives like completely yeah. decimate all state level uh, public services and functions if nobody is actually interested in them or or what they do. Um, I, I, I'm not uh, lucky enough to live in a state yeah. um, or, or have a state senator. But I will tell you. I, if you had one, you would be interested. I enjoy being a citizen who participates in local government. Uh, we have a, a D.C. council, which is a little bit like a city council, a little bit like a state legislature, but it's unicameral. You know, each member represents probably about 90,000 different people. Um, if you email your council member, you will probably get a reply um, because, you know, people aren't paying that much attention. But I think it's actually like really nice. Like if you happen to have like thoughts about your state government, you could get in touch with the relevant people. They would care about the fact that you cared because nobody ever does care. Like the fact that you can copy and paste bills from one state to another is itself a sign that the legislators, I think, probably accurately believe that citizens don't care what they're doing. Yeah, but that sounds well, I don't know. I mean, I think you could also just take it as a sign that they like what other states are doing and want to mimic that, that they feel like it could work well in their state. I would tack onto my prediction. Like, I think we will not care very much about what happens in the state legislatures and this, like, disparity that you're talking about, Matt, that's going to get worse. Like, the outrage is going to be reserved for Washington and what is happening here. And, like, you see, like, all this organizing around, like, this women's march in Washington, a lot of people making plans to come to Washington and, like, go to this march and, like, I'm hearing from a lot of people who are planning to come here for that. Like, I don't hear any, like, similar, like, marches happening across the country. And it seems like and – and there is a space for having an effect in, in D.C. Like, you saw, like, going back to the ethics thing we watched uh, on Sunday night and Monday – or Monday night and Tuesday. I'm getting the days all confused with the holiday. Um, 
there was a role for constituent engagement. You saw um, Robert Costa from the Washington Post talking about the members he talked to. They really had this about face because they were getting so many angry calls um, from their constituents. So it showed that you, you could have an effect on national government. And I think right now that has a lot of liberals thinking, well, like, let's focus our efforts on calling our representatives on Obamacare. And, like, we've kind of, like, seen this crack where we really can have an effect. I, I don't think angry calls on Obamacare are going to be, like, what turned the tide on the debate. Maybe I will be surprised and maybe that prediction will be wrong. But I only see this, like, I, I think you will see a lot of new and different laws moving through state legislatures and not a lot of attention yeah. put at them. That, like, there's going to be so much weird shit that Trump is saying and, like, so much happening in Washington that it will just seem so small it won't get um, much outrage at all. I think it's a mistake to think of there being a, like, a, like, a lump of citizen engagement that will yeah. go, like, either <laughs> into Washington or into – state and local efforts. I think that if people get on the like escalator of civic engagement, right, if you make contact with your um, state legislators and if you make contact with other people who live in your community and tell them about what you have seen is going on in the state capitol, that that creates a certain kind of like civic capital that is itself useful in influencing national politics and and vice versa. Um, I will say one thing that I'm interested in is the opposite of this, that um, California is only one state, but it contains about one in seven or one in eight Americans. Um, Democrats there recently obtained uh, two-thirds supermajorities in both houses of the legislature, uh, which means they can uh, raise taxes, they can rewrite the state constitution, et cetera. There's been a lot of coverage of what they – can do to fight Trump, right? And and there will certainly be some of that, right? The California Attorney General will do lawsuits. The state will try to, you know, defend immigrants, sanctuary cities, th things like that. I am going to be very interested to see if they put together a more affirmative, progressive agenda. You know, the kind of thing that there aren't that many states right now that could copy a, like, California progressive agenda. But one reason for that, I think, is that there isn't a clear model that if you look at governors like Larry Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Bruce Rauner in Illinois, one reason that blue states are so willing to accept Republican governors is that the voters in those states don't have a clear sense of like, what is it that a moderate Republican is saying no to, right? Like what Like what should I be asking from these guys? Because um, really th there isn't that much that is being asked, right? But like can California guarantee universal health care to its citizens? Um, I don't see why not. Um, you know, can they make uh, in-state tuition free at state universities? Like, I, I don't see why not. Um, California is much richer on average and much more liberal on average than the United States of America. So like these things that Hillary Clinton said she wanted to do that we would wonder if she could really accomplish in D.C., like 
I feel like Jerry Brown or Gavin Newsom or Javier Becerra, wh- whoever, you know, wins in 2018, like you you could do that stuff in California. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you might not succeed, but it's not crazy. I hear people, you know, talking all the time about uh, Denmark and Finland and their, their admiration for uh, countries that have about half the population of L.A. County. Um, you know, C- California is a big entity with a lot of fiscal resources at its disposal. And I think um, if you sort of cared to aim high there, you know, you could you could accomplish something and have a ball rolling a little bit with implications for Oregon and Hawaii and potentially New York for, you know, campaigns in Maryland and Massachusetts and, and Vermont and, and other places like that. But so far, we haven't really seen it. People are sort of like, raise the minimum wage and that's it. I don't know. I mean, I think it's harder than you make it out to be. Like, I particularly think California did have its single payer push under Schwarzenegger in like the 90s, I want to say. Um, it's hard without federal money. It's hard to do these things. And, um, you know, like you saw, like Vermont is another place where you could have imagined this happening um, over the past few years. And like where they really, at least on the healthcare, like they really did make a push for a very like liberal build up a social state, create single payer agenda. Um, and it just didn't fly. Like they could not sell Vermonters on this massive tax increase. Well, that that's, be necessary. that's because single payer is hard. Right. But I mean, s- suppose Obamacare is repealed. Yes. But right. then you have to find, like, the budget to replace all these tax subsidies. And, like, I'm still skeptical even a state like California Well, so if Obamacare is repealed, yes. right, Obamacare is a gigantic fiscal transfer away <laughs> from California to Kentucky and Alabama and places like that, right? The, the Republican agenda is going to incredibly increase the fiscal resources available to California. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I will see if they I am still skeptical they are willing to take those fiscal resources and collect more to, like, expand Medicaid more to create the subsidies. I mean, I I think there's there's (laughs) I'm not saying there's no reason for skepticism. I mean, I'm just saying that, like, on paper, it is doable, right? It's easier for California to tax Californians to subsidize low-income people than it is for the United States of America to do it. California is much, much, much richer than the United States of America. And, like, should be able to... Healthcare is a little complicated because the federal government uh, plays such a large role in in health policy, and you you can't, like, get the Medicare money. Um, But at least, like, higher education, right? I mean, we had so many people, you know, everybody going to rallies, chanting, sending me emails, you know, free college, free college, free college. So much easier to do free college in California for Californians than to do it on a on a national basis. Um, And, you know, uh, Andrew Cuomo was uh, out with a sort of a version of a a plan like that in in New York yesterday. Uh, They have a weird state legislative situation in New York at the moment whose details I don't understand. But, you know, another blue state could totally do that. Um, It would be hard in the sense that, like, doing anything is hard. But it's not fiscally more difficult to do it in a a Mm -hmm. state level than than at a federal level. Should we talk about our New Year's white paper? No, we should. It's wild. Okay. So in keeping with our New Year's theme, we have a great research paper, actually like a body of research I've dived into a little bit about um, about when babies are born as it relates to the tax advantages, because I'm sure the reason one decides to have a child is um, is to get those tax advantages. So there is a paper from 1999 from um, the economist Amitabh Chandra, who um, I think then he was at Kentucky. He's now at Harvard. He's a health economist. 
And he finds in that paper um, a significant increase in births in the last week of December compared to the first week in January. And this is because the IRS does not make you amortize the child exactly over the, over the so course if you of are the going, year. So if you are going to have a child, it is most valuable for you to have that child on December 31st because you can get all the tax benefits for the entire year even though you had that baby for one day. Um, January 1st is like a terrible day to have a baby because you're going to have to – you don't get any of that tax advantage. Um, I, reading this research I – I, I was born in Canada, so I don't know exactly how the tax policy works there. But I, my birthday is January 15th, and that really seems like an unforced – Unforced error on my parents' part. Um, fiasco. Fiasco. And they had two of us. I'm a twin. So they really doubled down on that. Um, so he argues, and it's kind of an interesting question. Uh, we do know that taxes motivate behavior. But the act of having birth is one where you, like, only have a small amount of flexibility around. Like, you can um, you can time it a little bit, but there are, like, some constraints you're working in. And the question they look at in this 1999 paper is – are the tax incentives enough to change behavior? And they say yes. They think that you can see evidence there's more births in the last week of December than there are in um, the first week of January, and they tie that back to some of the tax incentives. Now, there has been research since then. There was a 2013 NBER paper that kind of reevaluated some of um, Amitabh Chandra's work. I'm trying to pull up the name of the author. I, I believe the name of it is um, New Evidence on Taxes and Timings of Birth. And they argue, using a much larger data set, that the effects exist, but they're much smaller, that they're not as big as this. The first um, paper only used a data set of 170 births, the, That's which is small. Um, the next one is quite larger. And one of the interesting pieces of evidence they brought to the table um, was they find that um, about 5% of parents who have a baby in the last week of December don't even report that baby for the year. They just, I don't know if they like forget or like think, oh, I probably shouldn't get it because it's kind of like gaming the system. And this, and the people, they also find that the people who would benefit most, the people who are receiving an earned um, income tax credit, they are some of the people who, um, who are least likely to report. Right. And they kind of argue, and are least likely, you see smaller differences there. And they argue that these folks who are low income they might be the type who have even less control over the timing of their delivery. They might have less resources to really kind of game out the math. They might know less about the tax incentives. Um, So they do find evidence of an effect, but it's much smaller than the 1999 paper. And, well, it's a weird... It's a weird kind of thing, though, because it's, you know, people are always very interested in, in like, the impact of, of tax incentives on, on behavior. But what you're really coming up against here is that the the logistics of responding to the incentives <laughs> in this case are really not that favorable. Um, you know, some kinds of things, right? It's like, well, do you buy a car at the end of the year, the beginning of the new year, right? right. It's like quite easy to, to change what you're doing as long as you right. understand Like I bought glasses last week because I have an FSA and like I needed to use those dollars. Right. Like I was very clearly incentivized to do that. Right. So, you know, you have a limited capacity. You also have the fact that you would probably get pushback from <laughs> the doctors if you said straightforwardly that like this is why you wanted to like change the timing of an induction or, or a C-section. Um, you know, there, there's like there's like a social desirability impact, right? Where it's like there there are like reasons that you would feel comfortable giving to like a quasi stranger for why you wanted to do something, and like this like well for the tax benefits is the kind of thing that I, I think like a normal person would 
even though it's perfectly reasonable, I right? think you can get away with it. I'm not saying if you you're can't. scheduling a C-section. I'm not saying you can't get away with it. I'm just saying there's a. a I think there's like an impediment. Sure. You know yes. what I mean? If somebody's like, well, you know, I think the best day to do this would be uh, like Wednesday the third. To be like, oh, actually, can we do the thirtieth? <laughs> right? Can we? Can we do it on Saturday? It's like, well, I'd really like rather not do it on Saturday. It's a weekend. There's not many people at the hospital, and we're like, yeah, but the tax benefits. <laughs> It just it seems like a compared to other things where we're talking about the behavioral impact of taxes, there's like some relatively high kind of kind of hurdles here. So it's interesting that you see like any kind of impact. Right. It's surprising you see any sort of effect. It's also interesting that the tax code is written this way because it doesn't really make sense. Um, There are a lot of aspects of the tax code, actually, which have this quality where It's much cruder than, like, you would think logically, right? Like, the marginal rate just, like, leaps discontinuously from one number Mm -hmm. to another. And the reason they do it that way is to make the math simpler because, like, asking someone to do a fraction of 365 and then apply that to, uh, you know, their (laughs) their dependent deduction sounds hard. Um, Except if you think about, like, how technology has advanced over the past, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, precisely the thing that as a society we have gotten like way better at is giving ordinary people easy access to instruments where you punch a couple of numbers in a thing <laughs> and it does all of the math for you. And there has been no updating of like these aspects of tax policy. So like working out like am I really eligible for like the such and such credit is a little bit difficult. But the maths of like once you tell TurboTax all the facts about you, it calculates the number. Like that's the part that we've like really solved for. And there's like no reason you couldn't amortize your children and and all kinds of – it's not even amortized. But, you know, it's just like if you only had a baby for one month, you should get one-twelfth of a baby. Right. For the purpose of the year. Like that seems like common sense. And that's I mean, that's how we do other parts. Like if you look at healthcare.gov, you're getting a monthly subsidy. And there, like there it would sound insane to give you a subsidy for an insurance plan for the entire year if you're only getting it for for one month. And there, like, we know how to do it. You punch in some numbers, they tell you what your monthly tax credit is. The tax credit um goes right. to the insurance company and the insurance company bills you for the remainder. So like the technology so we've done it in like some other parts of the code. Well, because when it's new, right? When so it's, it's new. So it's yes. when you do something new, you sit down and you're like, wait, we're not going to be indifferent as to whether this person existed for the whole year or just for three days because it's obviously a completely different situation. But it's something we don't do in America because like law is hard and politics is difficult. We don't just like routinely update things to be like, mm-hmm. OK, fair enough. This was illogical in 1957, but also it would have been a huge pain in the ass to have everybody like doing it with pen and paper. Um, but like now it would be easy. So like let's let's just flip it. And like we're not we're not like skillful at that kind of thing because it's like, OK, you know, like Iglesias wants to raise taxes on new parents. And like eh, now, right. I, I, now, say, now like, I lost my election. The <laughs> only the only way this works out is like you're taking something away. Right. Like you're not like. Like, everyone's getting the full year now. And, and like, I don't know who's going to, like, 
well, be the one who's like, well, let's really like focus on fiscal responsibility. You make, and, well, it's, you could make it a little bit. You know, it's just like boring technocracy. It's like every child could be worth a nickel more, but you count <laughs> the babies correctly. And like it would be better. One of the things – well, one of the things you can't account for here and how people are um, accounting for tax incentives is how people decide to time their births in the first place. Yes. So I think if I remember this correctly, September is the most common – Month for birthdays? I have heard that. I have heard that. I don't know if it's actually accurate. Coincidentally, but it's the ninth month. It is. So, I mean, you could say, so are, are people just New Year, like, making decisions to have babies? And, and it's hard to measure, is that playing a role in having a lot of fall babies, a lot more than winter babies? Um, I don't know of any, like, good research on, on that. Because that's another way you see this incentive playing out, right? Like, it's not just... You have less control over um, over the exact day when you have like a due date, right. late December, early January. You do have a decent amount of control with modern contraceptives over like what range you're aiming yeah. for to have a baby and how much that responds to tax incentives, uh, according to the economist in this paper, is – it's a very difficult thing to measure, and it doesn't look like there's a lot of good research on that. Well, I've always, I've always had two theories about the fall birth surge, right? One is that you have a lot of couples who are like, let's have a baby, quote unquote, next year. Right. You know, and so then there's just like a January surge. The other is that holiday travel, like, pushes conceptions from December into, <laughs> into January, right? Because there's uh, – you know, right. pe- people are doing things. Um, so so I, I think those are, those are both viable. It's worth noting that because of the way school works, mm-hmm. September is sort of a terrible time uh, to be born um, because it, it puts you on like weird right. margins between classes. You know, my, my brother was a September baby and, you know, they do the like kindergarten thing where they hold you back right. and, and blah, blah, blah. And like that's a huge – the government gives you – school for free, um, but only once the kids, like, reach a certain age, right? Uh-huh. And the the financial incentive oh, that's to another get good your one. kid yeah. into public school is um, also relatively great. And people do not seem to me to be very good at taking advantage of it or even uh, thinking this through. Well, it also varies. I mean, that's, like, a harder one to plan for, right? Because it's, like, very school district, school district. Like, yeah, but it seems like, well, so here, as for, for PhD candidates out there, precisely because school starting good. times vary so much, you have a good instrument. Uh, but people move a lot. I guess that's like the hard. People don't move that much. All right. <laughs> you should look at it. It's a good. Yes. It's a good. Here, if any do, aspiring economists your, are looking for a dissertation, yeah, get your get your PhD. Put me in the acknowledgments. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, Six years from now, we'll read the first dissertation <laughs> that was begun with a conversation on on the weeds. Amazing. Okay. With I that, I think we're good. Thank you for listening. Thank you for for your patience in uh, my slightly uninformed discussion of why where do babies come from. Uh, you know, this has been a, 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 the Weeds is a is a Vox and, and Panoply production. Um, thank you to our, our producer Afim Shapiro. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. I uh, hope you'll uh, listen next week and also uh, tune yes. in to watch the live video interview. Yes. President Barack Obama, Sarah Cliff. Possibly Ezra Klein if he ever shows up. Yeah, uh, Friday, 11 a.m. on um, very popular internet websites, including Vox. 11 a.m. Eastern, Eastern 11 time. 11 a.m. Eastern time. Eastern time. If you live someplace weird, you will have to do that math yourself. All right. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>